Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon on the book of Revelation. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you for a favor. I know that many of you listen to our sermons on some type of podcast player, like Apple or Spotify. If that is you, it would be great if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review. I know that it might seem like a small or inconsequential thing, but it really can make a big difference. Why? Because every time you leave a rating or review, it helps our sermons be heard by more people. People who have the potential to be impacted by Jesus through the preaching of our church. This actually happens. I can think of people right now that have helped who've had an eating disorder, struggles with their in-laws, and sadness from a miscarriage. These are real people that have reached out because they've heard one of our sermons online. So while leaving a rating or review might seem like no big deal to you, it can be a big deal to those that helps hear our sermons. So again, if you're listening to this via a podcast player, please take a minute to leave us a rating or review. Thanks for listening to this sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I'm excited to talk today because we're going to talk about two things that are really, really, really important. One we're going to talk about is who Jesus is, according to the book of Revelation, which I think is a is a very big deal. I mean, who is Jesus? And there's all these titles, and um, there's this grand language around him, and we'll only see some of it. We're actually not going to see all of it. We're just going to see some of it, and I think it'll give you at least a bit of a picture of of how big of a deal the book of Revelation, John, the author of that book, thinks that Jesus is and what Jesus has done is. And then we're going to talk about two fates, and we're going to talk about how uh, there's these two fates for all of humanity, but there's there's really a way out for for all of us. There's a way to the good fate and not the bad fate. But as I say that, I think that, that the thing that God kind of struck me with in this passage is just that, that there is a way out. And the way out is through Jesus, this person that we will talk about. But it is a terrible feeling in life to feel as though there is no way out. I don't know if you ever faced a circumstance in life where, where you just look around and you go, there's no solution here. I don't know how this is going to work out. I'll tell you that um, that, that we felt that uh, last summer when we were uh, trying to figure out housing, and there was a moment where it was like, there's, I'm, I, there's no way. There is no out for us. I mean, we don't make enough money to qualify here, and we make too much money to qualify there, and, and like, there, there's, like, I'm totally stuck, and I don't know what to do, and I have exhausted my resources, and there's no way out. On a maybe less, you know, personal kind of level, you, you may know this, but it, um, my biggest fear is elevators, and, uh, and there's a reason that it's my biggest fear. It's not because they'll come crashing down. <clears throat> In fact, if I ever got stuck on one, I'd be trying to cut the cable. Uh, I'd want out immediately, um, but it's because there's no way out. And you get in, the ones with the metal ceilings, you know, as soon as I get in them, I'm panicking. Like, oh boy, please doors open, please doors open. And when I have, when I know I'm going high on an elevator, I'll actually pack like food and water um, in a backpack. Like if I have to go, if I know there's going to be 20 floors or whatever and I can't walk it, uh, I will take stuff because that feeling of there's no way out 
it freaks me out. And so even in a physical sense, you know, like claustrophobia, there's actually a word for the fear of getting stuck in elevators. I don't remember it. It's less common. But that fear of not being able to, to find a way out is terrifying to me. But in life, when we experience moments where it appears that there's no way out, like we can't get out of this job we hate or we can't fix this broken relationship or we, we're stuck in a marriage that will, seems like we'll never get better. Like when it seems like there's no way out, it's some of the worst moments in life, right? Like at least when there is some type of lifeline that we think we can grab for, when we can, we can reach out and say, well, there's another option, then things aren't so bad. But when we've come out to the end of our last options, when there's no other thing to reach out for, we feel... We feel desperate and scared. And what this passage says to me is even in the last final moments, um, there'll be no excuse for us because there is a way out. There is an option and his name is Jesus. And we need to take hold of that option. And I would say that as we look at this, this is going to be you know, a very apocalyptic um, passage of scripture because we're reading this apocalypse called Revelation. And it's going to be about the end and our final fates. But I would say that, that so often in our own just lives, the, the daily grind, we feel as though there's no way out. And, and what we learned here is that it's Jesus and, and, and he's always the way out. And so I hope that you'll see both an eternal importance to this, but also a, a temporal importance that Jesus is the way out even when everything seems so bad. I think that'll all make sense as we move through, but this is how it starts. Revelation 14, 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the, white, on the cloud was one like a son of man and a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And so here at the very beginning, we see this reference to Jesus. And here he's called the son of man, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But as I read that and I thought about this passage, it just was so clear to me that, that, that I needed to talk to you about all of these descriptions of Jesus in the book of Revelation. We've talked about some different themes as we've worked our way through the book of Revelation, but this is not one that I've paused to talk about, that the book of Revelations has a really, Revelation has a really high view of who Jesus is, and it describes him in, in various terms, and they all point to his greatness. And so I want to take just a minute here and read to you some of the descriptions and these descriptions are not comprehensive. It's not all of them. It's not all the ways that Jesus has talked about in the book of Revelation, but it's the ways that he's described. They almost are like titles. All of these things I'll read to you can act as titles for Jesus. They show who he is. Christ or Messiah. It's a big deal for the Jewish readers of this book, right? Like this is the one who you've waited for. It's Jesus, the one who's going to make things right for people. It's Jesus, the faithful and true witness. Jesus has called this multiple times. The firstborn from the dead, which points to his resurrection. And we're moving towards that in the book because we'll see a scene about him being the first resurrection. And there's this idea of the first resurrection. We'll talk about that on Easter. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is him who loved us. The alpha, the omega, the first and the last. 
He who lives was dead and is alive forevermore. He who has the key of Hades and death and the key of David, the son of God, the faithful and true witness, the amen, Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb, the child who is, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, king of kings, Lord God almighty, Lord of lords, the word of God, the beginning and the end and the bright morning star. Now, when you consider all of that, just that language, it should compel us to have a higher view of Jesus than we often do. There's this idea out there that that Jesus is this great man, but he's not really all that Christians make him out to be. But when you read the book of Revelation, it's just so clear that, that you can see Jesus the way the Bible sees him and you'll see him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Word of God, the Son of God, the beginning and the end, the one who gives us the ability to be resurrected and have life, the bright morning star. You'll see him that way or you'll see him incorrectly. You'll see him as some guy who taught well and did you know a few nice things, but that is not, that is not something that, aligns with the scriptures that we call the Bible. The Bible, it doesn't align. When we read the Bible and specifically the book of Revelation, there is this high view of Jesus, this view that should make us fall down on our faces in worship of him, not treat him like, you know, some decent historical figure that did a few nice things. The Jesus of the book of Revelation is the Jesus who is the Son of God, the faithful witness, the amen, the Lord, the Son of God, all of these grand things. I think you would do well to do a little bit of homework. I've tried to give you some revelation homework as you, uh, as we've moved through this, this book and I've preached on it. And I would say just read, just read the book and think about what it says about Jesus. Like if you just read the book of Revelation and you just thought, what is this telling me about Jesus? You're, you would be enriched and it would, I think, deepen your understanding of who this Jesus is that we love and that we serve as Christians. But in our passage, it's just, it, it seems such a minor title. Son of man. Looked like a son of man. And it's fascinating because this is actually the title that Jesus uses for himself the most. And it's not even close. When Jesus talks about himself, he says, son of man. And, and it's fascinating because in, in the gospels, as Jesus uses this term, he does it so frequently and he does it so personally where it almost can be like he's using the word I. Like he'll say the son of man and he's referring to himself. It's used like a hundred times in the four gospels. Here's an example of him using it like I. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, he says, I am, and then he just uses this almost as the, the first person, like the son of man. He's not saying somebody else. It's not like somebody else is going to come sitting on the clouds. I'm going to come sitting on the clouds and at the right hand of the mighty one. 
Now, I want you to pay attention because I think that these next two verses out of Daniel are so instructive. It's like the background information for what we're reading in the book of Revelation today. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now when Jesus came to earth, so much of that you know, wasn't true while he walked around, right? The Israelites thought it would be that he'd set up this earthly kingdom and it would go on and on and on while on earth and they, they would have eternal um, rulership over the other nations, that Israel would be restored to its rightful place as like the, the premium pinnacle nation in the world. But that didn't happen. And so now when Revelation returns to this idea, this prophetic word, this prophecy in the book of Daniel, it's saying that this is the moment where all of these things become true. Now Jesus does have ultimate authority and glory and sovereign power, but not every nation is worshiping him at this point. But there will come a day where every knee will bow before him. And it's this moment that we are reading about in the book of Revelation. Notice the title, the Son of Man. Notice the clouds. And here the Son of Man rides in on the clouds. This is the moment when Jesus returns to earth and he will rule and reign forevermore. And all people will recognize who he is. They'll recognize that he is not just some guy that did a few good things and taught a few nice things. But instead, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Son of God who came to save people. This is what we see in our passage, but it alludes to other passages in the Old Testament because here's the thing. This is so important to our understanding of Jesus in the book of Revelation. When somebody comes on a cloud in the Bible, it's always deity. It's, it's a reference to God. Listen to Isaiah 19.1, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt away with fear. Psalm 104, one through four, praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with the garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. And one more, Psalm 18, six through nine. In my distress, I called on the Lord. I cried to my God for help. For his temp from his temple, he heard my loud voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down Dark clouds were under his feet. Now you may not have picked up on this theme, but there's something going on here. In the three passages I just read you, God arrives and the symbol of that arrival is connected in some way, at least part of the symbol is clouds, these clouds. But what you may not see there is that in all of those passages, it is God responding to the cry of his people or person in the person of David and bringing the deliverance that they are asking for 
bringing the salvation, not in the eternal sense, but in the physical sense, the salvation that they are requesting, that they are calling out for, that they are begging God for. God is responding in these passages to the request of mercy and grace and help from his people. And now here in our passage, and we'll see this connection even stronger in just a second, here is the Son of Man, Jesus himself, arriving on a cloud. And what follows is this picture of a couple of harvests. But I want you to remember that what we're seeing here is a response to our call for help. Remember, what's the point of the book of Revelation? If you've been around for even a couple of weeks, you already know this. It's the point, the overarching theme of this book is that we should continue to serve God even when it's hard. Specifically, we should continue to to serve Jesus, to live for Jesus when there is internal rejections of truth like in the church and there's outside, outward pressure upon us to give up on our faith. We should keep going. And here we see Jesus, this this incredible figure, this person who isn't just some guy in the book of Revelation. He's king of kings and lord of lords and he is arriving on the cloud to respond to our cries for help. And the encouragement is, hey, there will be a day when God will show up on the scene and he will make things right for you. So keep serving him even when it's hard. Notice that he wears a golden crown on his head. This is a far cry from the crown of thorns that we encounter on Jesus' head at the end of his earthly life. He now wears a golden crown which symbolizes his victory through death and resurrection but also symbolizes his power. He has the ultimate authority including the authority to judge every person on earth and he will He will do that someday, and we see that in our passage. You'll see that in a second. And then there's this other key object here, the sickle. The sickle is in his hands. Listen to the next two verses. Then another angel came out of the temple and called out in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Now this language brings to mind another verse, a very famous uh, couple of verses from the time when Jesus did walk on the earth. Jesus says this thing to his disciples. If you've grown up in the church, you know this. If you've been around church, you know these words. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And he uses this imagery of the fields and the harvest to talk about people coming into relationship with him, people accepting him as their savior, people accepting the gospel as true and giving their lives to him. There's a similar idea seen earlier in the book of Matthew. He says, it says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so here's the idea behind this. Here's the son of man, Picture it with me. He's riding in on a cloud. Here's Jesus, right? But it's not, you know, just uh, meek Jesus that we picture walking the earth. It's not you know, Jesus walking around with dirty feet and his sandals, right? This is, this is a picture of Jesus where he's all powerful and almighty and he has a crown on his head and a sickle and he, he takes that sickle and he sweeps it over the earth. 
and there's a harvest. And the picture that we're supposed to see here, I know that the, the sickle, like we, we think bad, but the picture that we're supposed to see here is actually really good. Someday Jesus is going to come back in all his power and might. And he is going to harvest those of us that are Christians and he's going to take us into his barn. He's going to take us into his heavenly dwelling place and we will live there for eternity. That's the picture that we get here. This angel cries out, the harvest is ready for you. And Jesus just, and he gets us. Now, when you think about how hard it is to serve Jesus, man, oh man, it can be so hard sometimes. I mean, why do we keep striving to remove sin from our lives? Why do we keep working to to have fruit in our lives? You know, why are we trying to tell others about Jesus? And, and, And Jesus in this passage just reminds us, God reminds us that there will be a time and it will happen so quickly where where Jesus will just take us and he'll make everything better and we'll move. That's the last series in the book of Revelation. We're gonna see about how much better it's going to be and it's going to be so much better. It's gonna be all better, in fact. All of it will be better. The protecting of God's people uh, often uses the language of gathering in the Bible. And so here, Jesus is taking Christians and he's making them safe for eternity. Now, as we move to this next section, I'll remind you that we're reading an apocalyptic book. I haven't talked about this in a while. I really laid this foundation early in the book of Revelation. And if you haven't listened to the early series or sermons in this series, as we've moved through Revelation, I would say go back and listen to them. But apocalyptic literature is a bit bit wild. It's a bit crazy. Uh, the book of Revelation is not the only apocalyptic book, but it's the only apocalyptic book in the Bible. It's the only Christian scripture that's apocalyptic in nature. And so here, there's some things you just need to know. And, and you hopefully know this, but you may have forgotten if you've been around for several months, but it, it has visions and symbols. So there's tons of visions and symbols in this book of Revelation, which is what makes it difficult to understand. And then it's dualistic, like good versus evil. It's pessimistic and it's deterministic as like things are about to go down right now. And I say all that because this next passage, this next thing is very apocalyptic and, uh, and yet it's so important. And so listen, listen to this, verses 17 through 20. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came, I want you to pay attention to this, from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So what do we learn from this very apocalyptic feeling, you know, few verses in Scripture? Uh, it's been said uh, by some that, uh, that this is the same as the previous sickle swinging, but I think it's vastly different. I think what we have here is a picture, an apocalyptic picture of Jesus' final destruction. This is judgment 
This is justice. This is Jesus punishing or the angels punishing by the power of Jesus, the people who have rejected him and oppressed his people. That's the picture that we have here. And it's interesting to me because it's a biblical idea, these bulging grapes, that's a normal idea for God's punishment throughout scriptures. But here's the thing that you need to remember. This should scare people that aren't Christians. If you have not given your life to Jesus, then this picture with the blood and the sickles, it should just, it should terrify you. But for those of us who are Christians, it should not terrify us. I would point out that here in this passage, did you notice, I, I tried to pause and, and point your attention to it, that this angel calls out from the altar. Now, if you were to go back in the book of Revelation, you would see that the prayers of God's people who are being hurt by non-Christians, political, religious leaders outside of Christianity, they come from the altar. And so here is if God is saying, I am hearing you and this will not go on forever. Now this is, this is hard for us to really like as Christians that live today because, because nobody's beating us up for our faith. We're not really even being mocked most of the time for our faith. Nobody's taking away our jobs because of our faith. And for sure nobody is sending us to death because of our faith in modern America currently. I won't be surprised, and I've said this as we've moved through Revelation, if that happens, at least in my children's lifetime, where some of those things start to come to fruition. So for future generations, I think this is really important. But there are people around the world today that suffer these things that I've just described, and this is a big deal to them, but also these early Christians, I mean, if they don't choose to worship the emperor, then they're going to be killed in horrific ways. And to them, God is saying, I want you to know, I hear your prayers and I will bring justice on the people who are doing this to you. We, we are so far removed from persecution that we just go, oh, that's kind of mean sounding. But if you're suffering the worst type of suffering, if you're watching your children be killed because they're holding to their faith, then it feels really good to know that God's not going to let it go on forever. We look back at the worst types of people, the greatest, the greatest evil creators in world history, and we, we don't think it would be bad for them to be punished by God, right? Like we're glad that Hitler's life was ended because of the suffering he was creating. And for these early Christians being killed, because they were serving Jesus even when it was hard. God is saying to them, I want you to know that I hear your prayers. They're coming from the altar. I hear them and I'm going to bring justice. And so here's, here's where I think we, we kind of, we can get it wrong as Christians. Um, I mentioned uh, in, in my first sermon on Revelation uh, this movie called A Thief in the Night. And uh, it's been fascinating because I, I mentioned that I watched this movie. And this movie is about uh, Jesus and rapturing people into heaven and then, and then how bad the earth gets. And, and, uh, 
And I mentioned how scary it was for me as a kid. And I don't know why I watched it. It's a funny, weird memory. I remember where I watched it, but I don't actually remember anybody watching it with me. Uh, I Now I've learned since it's like a big youth group thing, like youth groups would play this movie and um, parents would show it to their children who weren't living for Jesus enough, you know, and like everybody ended up so scared. And I just remember watching it like literally by myself. I think it was a sunny day. I don't know why. This is the 80s still, right? And so like I can, I can see it on my grandma's very old feeling TV now. Um, and, and I can picture all that. I just watched it alone. I was so terrified. And, and what's happened, you know, and, and so I've since learned that some of you have that same experience. And then I, by coincidentally learned online in a Facebook group I'm in, that there is this, there's people out there who actually think that there's this trauma attached to this movie in Christian circles. And this guy was like doing a whole research project around it for his podcast. And here's what's so sad about that. Everything that we read in the book of Revelation is meant to encourage Christians. There's not a single word in the book of Revelation that is meant to terrify us. Now, it might be there to compel us, to inspire us to keep going. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. But we're not meant to sit around and go, oh boy, this is scary. We're meant to take hope in the fact that God, if we are following Jesus, if we've given our lives to Jesus, that there is a way out and we have found it that Jesus is hearing our prayers, that he understands what we are going through, and that he is going to bring justice and take us into a better, perfect eternity. That's what we're meant to take away from the book of Revelation. It's not meant to be this book that we're like, oh, that sounds so terrifying. It's supposed to go, for me, it's going to be good in the end. Now, here's the deal. If you're not a Christian, you should be terrified of this. You really should be. It was written for us who are Christians primarily, first and foremost, but it's also written for you, uh, secondary, second, second it's written for you to, 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 to look at this and go, I don't want that, I don't want that. This is terrible sounding, it's terrible sounding. And let me just point out how terrible sounding it is. Uh, it's 100 and 84-ish miles of blood, that's what's here, this 1600 stadium, 184 miles-ish of blood, and, and it's like, what it says here is it's to the horse's chest, like that much. So whatever a horse's chest would be on me, I'm not a horse guy, but, uh, but somewhere in this region here, uh, I think, and just blood for 184 miles. Now, what kind of book is this? It's an apocalypse. Should we take this literally? No. But when we take things figuratively, does it mean they have no meaning? No. It's meant to demonstrate how final and horrible this punishment will be. Now, I don't like talking about this stuff. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Don't want to get up here and be the fire and brimstone guy, but I always want to be faithful to the scriptures. I want to tell the truth. I think that's my responsibility. And so what this is saying is that when Jesus comes back and harvests his people into heaven, the people who aren't harvested into heaven are going to suffer a terrible, terrible fate. But there's this little note this little thing that should just compel you who should fear this to give your life 
to Jesus. There's this little thing. And it's so almost hidden, it's so subtle, and I love it because I like when the Bible is subtle and beautiful and deep at the same time. I I just want you to notice where this happens. They are trampled in the winepress outside the city. Reminds us of this very kind of subtle thing about Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 13, 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see that connection? I'll just, I want to read it again. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see this terrifying fate that the Bible speaks of. There is a way out. You are not trapped in this fate. You have put yourself in this situation. You walked into this elevator. You put yourself in this situation by your own sin. And the reality for you is if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't accepted his gift of salvation, then you are destined to be part of that blood flowing 184 miles, chest high for a horse. Or whatever that means, that terrifying scene means. But it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to have your blood shed outside the city because Jesus allowed for his blood to be shed outside the city 2,000 years ago. That little subtle note is there for the same reason that so many little clues pointing us back to Jesus are there in the book of Revelation. It's saying, this is the destiny for all people outside of Jesus, but please come to Jesus. It's like every single scary moment in this book still is pointing back to Jesus and compelling people who have not accepted him as their savior to do so now. You see the story that we believe as Christians that each and every one of us has turned to our own ways. We've all sinned against God. We've made ourselves enemies to God. God created us to be in a relationship with him But we chose to reject that relationship and we chose to sin against him. We chose to turn our backs on him. And God, as a holy and righteous God, now needs to punish that sin. And here's the reality. He needs to separate himself from us for eternity. But he doesn't want to. And so he's calling us and he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And he's doing that through the death of Jesus, his son. Jesus came, he lived perfectly, he never sinned. He did everything in perfect union with the Father in heaven. When he acted, it's because God wanted him to act. When he spoke, it's because God wanted him to speak. And at the end of that perfectly sinless life, he died outside the city on a cross. His blood was shed. It was a brutal death. It was brutal. But it wasn't just brutal physically. It was also brutal spiritually because on that cross, he paid the punishment of hell for us. 
God said, here's a way out. I, I still, despite your rejection of me, despite you turning your back on me, despite you walking away from me, I want a relationship with you. I want to be with you for eternity. Here is your way out. And what's so cool is that God didn't just, you know, leave it there and say it one time, but throughout the history God has still condemned, he gave us the Bible, he gives us preachers, he gives us other Christians, he gives you other Christians who are saying, hey, please, God is giving you a way out, God is giving you a way out, God is giving you a way out, God is giving you a way out. And not only that, but he writes about, he gives us by the power of his Holy Spirit, these descriptions of hell that say, look, it's going to be terrible if you don't come to me, please come to me. It's going to be terrible if you don't come to me. There is a way out, it's my son, his name is Jesus. But you have to, to take the way out. You have to take the way out. You have to believe that Jesus, in fact, died for your sins. And you need to commit your life to him. It's an easy trade. It's an easy trade and it changes your fate for eternity. And by the way, I mentioned this at the beginning, it doesn't just give you a way out from eternal destruction because I know that can be so far away feeling. But it gives you a way out from the things that you suffer with now. It gives you a way out from your loneliness. It gives you a way out from your anxiety which we talked about earlier so many suffer from today. It gives you a way out from that horrible feeling of guilt for that thing that you did 30 years ago that you can just never let go of. It gives you a way out. Gives you a way out from your fear of death, which still so many are wrestling with today. It gives you a way out for eternity, and it gives you a way out now. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. I mean, we look at these two destinies the sickle that saves and the sickle that destroys. And Jesus is still right there in the middle of it. Jim McGuigan says, the wheat is gathered and the grapes are trampled. And you have the opportunity, each and every one of us has the opportunity to be the gathered and not the trampled. And what determines that fate and that destiny is what we do with Jesus. And if you're a Christian, again, this, this passage, even this passage has been given to you to say, hey, it's hard right now. It's difficult to keep serving Jesus. There's this sin that you keep committing and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying. Keep trying. Or you're dealing with people at work who just don't want to be quite as friendly to you because they, you know, they know you're the odd Christian person. Like keep serving Jesus. Keep dealing with that. Or you have these family members that, that just look down on you and they think you're the weirdo. Like, like keep serving Jesus. Keep serving Jesus when it's hard. This passage is there for you. But remember, Christian, what allowed for you to take the way out and it's Jesus. And for you who aren't Christians, I want you to remember that you will either be gathered or trampled, but you have the opportunity to be gathered right now. 
You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, suffer the fate of being trampled, but even now you can be gathered. You don't have to wait. I mean, we're gathered. God, he saves us and he adopts us into his family. You can come into God's family now. You can have a relationship with God now. You can pray and know that your prayers are being heard. You can know that every single thing is working for your good. You can know that God is with you. In fact, he'll come inside of you and he will indwell you. There is no place as a Christian that you can go that God is not there with you because he has come to live inside of you and you if you're not a Christian can have that all you have to do is say Jesus I believe that you came to die outside of the city and I accept that gift and give you my life so today I say be the wheat not the grape if you are the wheat then don't fear all this Be excited and keep serving Jesus when it's hard. But if you're a grape, become the wheat. Be gathered in right now by God. Give him your life because your eternity and so much of what happens now hangs in the balance. Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I thank you that even in these these very scary apocalyptic moments in the book of revelation that that allow that have you know been made into movies that that scare us they 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 freak us out lord apparently they they cause trauma childhood trauma memories in certain people god i, I even in even in that there's these allusions to you lord and i am so thankful god that you even today, even now, are drawing people to yourself, Lord. And I pray, God, for, for those people who are just here, watching online, listening later, that are not Christians, that are the grapes, Lord, that they would fear you. But that fear would cause them, God, to embrace the gift that you've given them by dying on the cross, dying outside the city, allowing for your blood to be shed outside the city. Draw people to you, even use my words. Lord, I know you gave us your scripture. Your Holy Spirit is moving on this earth, Lord, and yet you, I hope even, even you'll use my words to compel one, God, one person to give themselves to you, to become wheat, to be gathered in by you, to join your family. And for those of us who are Christians, God, I pray that we just keep serving you. I'm saying it every week and in different ways, Lord, but it's hard to be a Christian. It's growing ever harder every day, God. Every year in our country, it grows ever harder to serve you, Lord. But I pray we would, we would take these words and we'd keep going and we'd keep fighting the good fight, as Paul said, as he struggled along in a culture that, that was so anti-you and he tried to tell people about you and he said, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm finishing the race. And I, I pray, God, as we fight and we race on, Lord, that, that we would remember how good it is that you gave us a way out and we would never forget the sacrifice that you made to allow us to fight this fight and to, to run this race, Lord. Help us to never, help us to not fear, God, what will come, but to to be so thankful and to keep serving you because we are. Lord Jesus, we love you, and um, we pray these things, and we know that they'll be heard. I pray these things and know they'll be heard because of what you've done for me. Amen.